Hello, and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 218, recorded January 27th, 2021. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Ocken. And Brian, we have a special guest, Jeremy Tanner. Welcome, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. You know, we've got to talk a little bit at conferences and stuff. And now that we just don't seem to have conferences in the world anymore, uh, we're going to have to like drag you into our world to actually get to catch up. It's good. I need a, I need a tiny bit of that Portland fix. I love uh, being up there, but I mean the entire Pacific Northwest, but Portland in particular. And yeah. so, uh, yeah. So where are you at? Uh, I am in Austin, Texas. He's in the Portland of the South. I thought that was, oh yeah. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, uh, maybe real quick, uh, tell us about, about yourself, Jeremy. People who don't know you? Absolutely. Uh, I like motorcycles. I like suede shoes. I like smoked meat, um, like Python. Um, currently uh, working in developer advocacy at Equinix Metal and um, living in Austin, Texas, uh, raising uh, two awesome tiny copies of myself and trying to uh, sort of ride it out while the world is melting, I assume, like everyone else is. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, we share a lot of interests, like you and I both do motorcycle riding and just a sidebar, like the ability to just jump out on a bike, get away, cruise through the mountains and just pull back into the garage and have, you know, somewhere outside of your four walls, a really cool experience. Like that's a really neat, a neat thing to do when you're otherwise just stuck at home. It's uh, we have, there's so many like technology guardrails, right? Like you know, turning your phone screen to grayscale. So it'll be less enticing, turning off your notifications, <laughs> whatever else. But yeah. the really nice thing about riding a motorcycle is the, the, the guardrails aren't there. and you absolutely have to be paying full attention. So it's not, oh, I'm also thinking about something else. You're like, well, do you not want to die? Then like watch the watch the road, be aware <laughs> of everything. And so it forces everything to the background for however long you can manage it. Yeah, that's such an interesting idea of like, I'm just going to put the world out because I really have to focus on this, this situation, on this curvy road or whatever. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, Brian, I believe you have the first item. Um, something, is this about laundry or what is up here? Constant folding, of course. Yeah, laundry. Well, I I do like the little uh, the little animated sloth folding something. Um, it's nice. Um, no, I brought this up uh, because so the it's an interesting article uh, about uh, constant folding. So constant folding is when a language replaces your uh, constant expressions at compile time rather than computing them at runtime. So if I say something like you know twenty four times sixty or whatever, it'll just replace that. Um, wait, wait, well, wait. Let me. Did you just say f- compiling? Yeah. So like, that's like the, when I when I compile, like what is that? GCPPY, GPY. Like how do I? <laughs> no, I mean this is a misconception. I think a lot of people have is like languages like Python don't actually get compiled. They do. Well, there, there's the bytecode compiler, right? So, yeah. Um, and I and that happens. I mean, for a lot of I guess if you just have a script that's just one file, that'll happen every time you run it. So that doesn't really. There's not really a pre thing. But um, if you've got uh, an installed package or or lots of stuff that gets run for a long time. Yeah, that bytecode will happen once. Bytecode conversion. What is that called? Is that compiling? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Um, but it just doesn't compile to machine instructions. It compiles to bytecode like Java or .NET. But then what happens is it doesn't JIT compile. It just interprets it from there on, right? So yeah, I think there's there's levels, but it's yeah. automatic and hidden, which is cool. Well, uh, C Python at the very least has this notion of uh, constant folding where it just come you know comes up with your expressions and and does it at at the compile time instead and it's something that i really don't think like i don't really think about in python i definitely think i know it's happening in uh, in c in c++ 
Um, we got the precompiler going on, but the it does happen, and you can see it in action. And this this uh, article talks about it. You can use the disassembler to um, disassemble a a bit of Python code and see what it would look like um, outside of you know uh, after the conversion. Uh, and so something like you know if if you recommend one of the examples was um, the days uh, in seconds is twenty four times sixty times sixty, and and then it the the python will just convert that to what is it 86400 yeah. now the i'm bringing this up like one of the things this is kind of an interesting article about really how it does it and the rest of the article kind of goes into you know the the implementation uh, on cpython of how the folding happens and that's interesting but mostly the reason why i brought this up is because i want people to remember that this happens so uh if like for this example it is way better to put in your code uh, days in seconds equals 24 times 60 times 60. That's really clear. You don't really have to comment it much because people can just look at it. But if you were to manually replace that with 86400, it's suddenly a magic number then. And people won't, you know, in the future, you'll be like, where did this number come from? What happens if I change it? It's going to muck everything up. So um, I think things like this are great. Um, I use it. It talks about it's not just math expressions, things like string expressions too. So you can, uh, you know, if you're going to do a, uh, you know, uh, 30 different uh, dash marks to print across the screen, you can say like dash, you know, the dash character times 30 and Python will just convert that for you at bytecode time. So this, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah very just cool. I just checked it for strings and yeah, it definitely says, you know, the final result of the calculation of a bunch of constants involving strings is the answer. You know, the benefit is if it's always going to be the same outcome, why compute it every time you run that function or do an import? Yeah, and there is some size uh, optimization that happens um, that Python realizes that uh, some things are so in the article talks about uh, some of the constraints. So if you if you end up with like, you know, a 4000 character string after doing it or, you know, I think they found the the limit was it'll go up to 4096. But if you make it 4097, it doesn't do the uh, folding at that point. Um, I don't think you have to memorize that. It's just know that Python does has some optimization where it says if the pre-computed value is too big, then don't worry about pre-compute and do it at runtime. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Perfect. I like it. And, you know, it's another cool uh, chance to just play with the disassembler and understand that a little bit better. Jeremy, you ever play with disassemble things? No, but was uh, uh, appreciated that the... Uh... It was a way to avoid um, a little of the magic number disaster where um, had uh, looked back and reviewed a bunch of, I think it was physics code. And so often there will be like, oh, if you're a, if you're a domain expert and you're like, and you're familiar <laughs> with uh, um, nuclear reactors, then yeah, you'll, you'll know, you'll know why these pieces are here. I, you need, please, please name them things. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Here's the, the number of um, moles of, or whatever in chemistry, like it, it doesn't make any sense, right? So if you kind of do the calculation, but you don't have to pay for the calculation, that's that's really nice. I used to do this all the time with the days and seconds, like the seconds and days, because what I would do is I would go to like a date time. I would say date time dot total seconds divided by seconds and days. Well, that's how many days it is until uh, Paul was on Talk Python, the guy behind the date time stuff and says, you know, 
you can go to a time delta and say it has days equal one and then divide the date time, another time delta by days equals one, and it'll tell you the same answer. Like, that's just crazy. I, <laughs> I know how was I supposed to know I could do that? So, but yeah, this is definitely a, a cool one. And the disassimilar is neat to really understand what's happening. Like these little constants, you know, load const, store name, load const, just get fed straight through this huge C of L.C switch loop and that's your program all right one of the things i want to bring up is these are fun little tiny examples of using the disassembler which is a fun thing to do because when you and if you're trying to do a larger function and disassemble it it's going to be more complicated but it's uh, kind of fun to look at the output of the disassembler yeah yeah definitely it gives you that inside view all right i stole this from you brian it's a good one it's a good one (laughs) so uh, this one is um, called PIP Review. And PIP Review is really cool. I learned about this from PyCoders, the newsletter. And the idea is that updating all of your packages that you've got in a virtual environment is a hassle in various ways. One way is I could just not set, you know, I could not pin the version numbers and just install the latest, right? But then if I try to reinstall, it just says, you know, those are those are up to date. Maybe I see, oh, I know that there's an update for HTTPX. So I'll do a pip install dash U pipx, right? Upgrade and it'll upgrade it, but it won't upgrade the things that pipx installed. Even if I ask pipx to upgrade itself, you know what I mean? So there's like this, the dependencies of the dependencies and all that become just a hassle. So there's this thing called pip review, which lets uh, you smoothly see all the available updates and then apply those. This used to be part of tools. But it's now its own standalone thing that just directly uses pip. So like all good things, you pip install pip review, which is very meta. And then you have pip review. And then you can just ask it to do things like just run pip dash review on the on the command prompt terminal. And it'll tell you, you've got this version of this library. There's a new one available. And that's pretty much equivalent to doing pip list dash outdated. But then you can also just say, and fix it. So pip dash review dash dash auto, which will just find all the things out of date and update them, including the dependency of the dependency of the dependency, which is pretty awesome. It'll also let you do this in an interactive way. So you can say dash dash interactive, and it'll say, this is out of date. Do you want to upgrade it? Yes or no. NumPy is out of date. Do you want to update it? Pandas is out of date. Do you want to update it? And so on. And you can selectively opt into those. And then you can even come up with a constants file that says, you know, please don't update these automatically. They're stuck in an old version for whatever reason, pinned to a certain version. What do you guys think? I, I hear NumPy and pandas and and matplotlib and it's it, it's all the flashbacks, right? I think we I think we met when uh, in in before time when uh, I was right. uh, Anaconda, and so yeah. I mean, since um, this uh, certainly looks interesting and it's and uh, solving uh, and solving problems, but on my end, still very much, especially for scientific Python bits. Um, a conda loyalist, it's, both yeah, for, yeah, uh, package, uh, both for package management and for um, uh, environment management. Yeah, that's a whole different side of things, and you know, conda definitely manages that quite a bit, right? Like, it's all about you can open up your navigator and create your environments and interact with those in that way as well. So, yeah, I think this probably applies more to if you're just doing straight pip, or maybe you're thinking, well, pip env or whatever. The other alternative would be to use something like dependabot where it finds those changes, you pin your version, it says there's now a new version, and then it upgrades it. But that's always going through like some external workflow. And this is just like, well, I don't want to go through that. I just want to right now find the new stuff and change it or don't. Yeah, I tried this out on a, a project of mine that uses, um, uses you know, Flit and uh, um, the PyProject.toml to define um, the a couple pinned versions of 
things. So I wanted to check to see if they're out of date. Um, and I tried the PIP review auto um, to just auto update them. And now that, that PIP has this dependency resolver, it noticed that my project had some pinned and it said, there is a new version, but there's a conflict with your, your project. So just be aware you need to figure out that conflict on your own. So Oh, interesting. Um, okay. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. I've recently run into some issues with the resolver and the new, yeah, we've gone over that. <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, Jeremy, what's your first one? Uh, keyboards. My first one is keyboards. And so um, I have fallen well down the mechanical keyboard rabbit hole. Um, you want I a guess, loud so clackety, like, <laughs> clackety, clackety, clack version? Perfect. Just, just like such, yes. Um, so uh, I suppose the Python tie-in is, first of all, like, yes, your your keyboard is probably the way that the bulk of the Python gets into your computer. And so... Right. Um, yeah. As much as we would like to just plug up Jack straight into the brain and think code, it doesn't work that way yet. Um, so it makes sense. Um, so I've fallen into mechanical keyboards mostly to try and get my wrists to be less hurdy. I suppose for our uh, viewers who are watching with their ears in the future, the listeners, if this is on uh, on audio, I've just shown you my hands. I may show you keyboards, but and I'll have to remember to uh, describe <laughs> those. Um, That's right. But have uh, started to uh, really love mechanical keyboards for um, ergonomic improvements and uh, ability to uh, sort of restructure the way that they work for my um, uh, for my benefit. Uh, most of the keyboards that you'll see connected to computers are using that uh, are like a flat bar shape. Um, use QWERTY, which uh, actually dates it's back everything to everything uh, wrong. Everything wrong that you could do, right? Are, are you? Uh, do you know when uh, QWERTY uh, came into uh, came into usage? Yeah, I mean, very clackety, right? For the the to slow down the typewriter. Yeah, but in it was in 1873, and so like Civil War era, like oh back in a uh, back in I mean within ten years of the the first American Civil War. So when um uh we were still like settling our disputes with like swords on horses and and, <laughs> and so on, and uh, just like there's always a continues to be a better way of doing things, and we keep on working towards uh, the better way. Like uh, uh, the layout of keyboards is sort of a vestige of a pastime with different requirements. Kind of like wearing yeah. pants now, right? Like we used to be going out and seeing people now. Uh, shorts, yeah. Yeah. let the shins breathe. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so anyway, like with the what, what's useful on the keyboards is in addition to uh, getting ergonomic benefits, you can change up your key map. Um, normal keyboards have maybe 100 keys on them or so, but they really have 200, maybe 300 keys. Uh, you have modifier keys. You push shift and you're like, okay, now all those keys are now, ca- all the letter keys are now capitals. Uh, the one is an exclamation point and so on. Uh, and uh, taking key maps are the ways that you can take and change the those keys to what, right. put them For under example, whatever if you wanted to do. Like. Yeah, if you want to say to switch to Dvorak or yes. something along those lines, right? I had a friend who taught himself Dvorak, but seeing the QWERTY keys was so impossible for him, he shaved all of the letters off of his keyboard because it was either easier to have nothing rather than have the wrong thing there. That's uh, that's sort of what's going on over here. This is uh, oh, look at a Trius, a, 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 right. a 44 key split. And, okay, uh, you got to describe that to people. First of all, what is that? Yeah, that uh, so a company, uh, Keyboardio, uh, just keyboard.io, has a... Um, Made a, uh, I think a gentleman in the, yes, uh, Pacific Northwest also made a hand-wired version of this. Um, uh, Jesse and Kaya at uh, Keyboardio made a, uh, a mass market version that's manufactured that instead of soldering everything together and ordering the pieces, you can just get a completed keyboard, which is very nice. Uh, yeah. And so you hit, 
for this keyboard, you're going to operate largely with layers. And so you don't see as many symbols as you, or numbers here. And so when you hold down um, maybe super or function, it's going to change one of the sides to arrows, change one of the sides to a number pad, um, change one of the other sides to uh, the, uh, the symbols, uh, exclamation point, at symbol, asterisk. Wow. And um, instead of reaching and twisting like you might on a normal keyboard, where every time we thought of a new thing, you're like, oh, that the hash symbol, that's going that's to go to the that's right going to need to go all the somewhere. other stuff. Yeah. Um, well, you need to put, add it on and the keyboard keeps growing here. Your, your hands stay in about the same position. But when you um, put your uh, your ring finger down on the on the home row, the of your uh, of your left hand, the entire right side changes to different keys. And uh, wow. And so the way I suppose the Python tie in there is that um, most of these keyboard firmwares are written in uh, are written in C because you have the little microcontrollers under uh, that's telling what keys what to be. But uh, there are Python portions. And so the um, the command line interface that QMK, um, this uh, project on GitHub, uh, quantum mechanical keyboard uses uh, is, uh, is written in, uh, is written in Python. Um, some of the tools that, uh, your key maps are sort of always in flux. And so you can evaluate the ways that you're, um, using your keyboard. And so, uh, Python can help out there to help you make a heat map of, okay, which, which keys am I pressing most frequently? Let me move those to a, let me move those to a stronger finger. Uh, and wow. again, because we're sort of home in quarantine pandemic time, um, it's fun to have this sort of escape room to get yourself out of. And there's a little bit of a challenge to <laughs> remember where that new key is or even assembling. Uh, you've got keycaps coming from one place and um, trying to find out what's what new features you might be able to pull down in the firmware from GitHub on another. And uh, folks are making different designs. You can go with split hand boards. Uh, there, yeah. we'll center that up into the uh, interview. This is uh, for those who are listening. Uh, RGB KB uh, Saul, the uh, like the sun. So, uh, so you basically two. have two separate pieces. Oh, and it has LEDs. Beautiful. Uh, so you have two chunks, one for each hand, and you can position them yes. however fits for you. Okay. Yeah, and so it can open up your uh, open up your shoulders, open up your upper body a little bit, yeah. and hopefully make your wrists less hurty. Was the uh, yeah? Well, I used to. I've I've struggled for. And I got to do math for 20 years, maybe 15 years with RSI issues. And it's, I mean, it was to the point where I had surgery on my right hand for carpal tunnel stuff and thought, man, what am I going to do? I did physical therapy. It was really quite scary, actually. And I just, what I did, two things, I got a much, much better, more ergonomical keyboard and only use that. Like I never type on my laptop because that thing is a kiss of death for my hands. And the other one is I force my, I'm right-handed. I force myself to become left-handed for mousing because I use my right hand for the arrows and page down and insert and all that. And I figure it's already doing all that stuff. Might as well. Do you use one of the sideways? The, uh, I cannot the... find a good sideways left-handed one. Oh, that's, it's yeah. It's so that's a, super hard that's to find. That's tricky. Yes. I could either go vertical or I could go left-handed and left-handed is working super well for me. Um, but I'm, all, I'm using the uh, little Microsoft ergonomic, um, Travel and I, I love that. This thing goes with me everywhere. I, I don't go anywhere without it. So yeah, I the think best it's a, way to fix it's an it. important thing. You're good. The best way to fix it is to touch your computer less. But if we, yes. if that's not if that's not an option, um, so the I mean the other things that are, have beat my hands up and I'm trying to be better about are um, if you hold your phone and you just scroll and you scroll some more and you scroll some more. You can do it with your left hand instead, or you can try and not look into the uh, look into the abyss so often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I've used uh, voice typing. Go ahead, Brian. Do, Doing a lot of less doom scrolling now than I used to. So yeah, 
Things are less crazy. Yeah, yeah. Brian, and what do you got for your setup? Do you top, just type on your MacBook or you got something uh, better? Me? Yeah. Oh, Kinesis. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh. You are full on over there, dude. A Kinesis yeah, so, one. Okay. Dishes. Yeah. So yeah, those I've, are like the hollowed out, like uh, typing in a crater. Yeah. So I've been using Kinesis for like 30 years, 25 years. Wow. Um, and uh, a similar, I had problems with uh, with my arms. And I, I was just like a couple of years into my career and I'm like, oh my God, I finally get a programming job and I can't do it anymore. So, um, <laughs> but I switched to the left-handed mouse and, uh, and now I don't even think about it. Some people say like, I don't like switch the mappings. I don't switch the left to right. I just move the mouse over and mm. use it with my left hand. And then also the kinesis. And then when the, the when the whole like uh, mechanical keyboard thing started, people were talking about that. I'm like, what, what's all this about? And then I found out that the Kinesis has been mechanical for oh, since it started. So, yeah. 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 Kinesis is definitely, definitely an interesting one. Although I think I want to get a new one because the, the, uh, the key, whatever the, whatever the mechanics and behind it are, um, uh, are the wrong color or something. I want to get ones that I, I have to push down a little harder because I find that I rest my hands on my keyboard and it'll start typing stuff. Mm. So I'd oh, like to, man. I'd like yeah, to have so- it be more hard to push down. I think there's probably three things that you can do. You can either crack your switches open and put in heavier springs. You can go with a, um, you can get a key switch puller and pull out the switches and plug in. Um, Depends if they're uh, hot swappable or if they're soldered down into the board. And so I, I'm not certain how that one's constructed, but um, oftentimes when there's a, if there's a greater investment in getting the the board in the first place, um, like the Ergodox ones are uh, hot swappable. So you can take a, Puller in. I have not in front of me, but over in over in a bin. Different uh, key switches that I've tried. Some that are quieter. Some that are louder. Some that are heavier. Some uh, some that are uh, really light. And yeah, eventually you figure out your the sort of the Goldilocks situation. And instead yeah. of a keyboard that's made for to sell millions and millions of units, you've got one that maybe are out of billions of people. There's maybe three like it that are just like yours. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, uh, Magnus. Carlson, Magnus Carlson uh, says uh, he has an old Ergo Docs over in the corner. Right on, right on. Why is it in the corner? Don't put baby in the corner. <laughs> yes, get those, love those wrists. Yeah, yeah. The one that I love, the thing I love about this one is it has such short keystrokes. Like you barely have to move your fingers, which to me, a lot of these really nice ergonomic ones, I feel like you've got to move them a lot, which I don't know. It's, it's always a balance. This one works well for me, but all of these things are super fascinating. Yeah, there's switches yeah. with a um, there's switches with adjustable travel, and so over yeah. uh, you you can cut probably more than a millimeter out of it, going from two down to either one or maybe even point eight on some. Oh wow! So uh, this is uh, you can you can tune it exactly to what you're after. I tried yours, Michael. The um, I have one of those whatever that you've got. Yeah, the but sculpt the, ergonomic or whatever it's called. But I, the it was it's a Bluetooth yeah. one, and I can't do Bluetooth keyboards. The the, the Bluetooth delay gets me. Uh, you'd think that I wouldn't be able to notice, but I notice and I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if you could buy keyboards, wires? <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I suppose we didn't uh, we didn't talk about mousing either. We talked about like the actual device. But in um, QMK, that firmware and other keyboard firmwares, um, if you hold down a button, the other side of your keyboard can become a mouse. And so both any of your keyboard keys can make it travel diagonally or up and down or can be used as click. And so you can replace your, uh, especially for traveling, you can replace your mouse with uh, being able to navigate, um, move the mouse around with, uh, oh, with the keyboard. Sounds awesome. If you could ever fly again, I could see setting a little laptop on like 
the, the little fold down tray, put that keyboard on top and, and you're good to actually get some stuff done. All right. Now, before we get on to the next item, let me tell you all about our sponsor for this week, Datadog. Thank you, Datadog, for sponsoring the show. If you're having trouble visualizing latency or CPU or memory bottlenecks in your apps and you're not sure where it's coming from or how to solve it, check out Datadog. They seamlessly correlate logs and traces across individual requests, and you can quickly troubleshoot your Python app. Plus, their continuous profiler allows you to find the most memory and CPU-consuming parts of your production code continuously, just run it all the time, minimum overhead, pretty awesome. You'll be the hero that got that app back on track at your company. Get started today with a free trial at pythonbytes.fm slash datadog, or just click the link in your podcast player show notes. Uh, Brian, let's talk about logos. Sure. Um, oh, I, I, tried to pull, I tried to pull this up, but uh, we're suffering some uh, downtime. There we go. There we go. Okay. Um, so the, the, there's an article called uh, Reinventing the Python Logo, and I thought it was a. I thought it was interesting, mostly by the about the history. I guess I hadn't I hadn't thought about it too much. So um, the history really is there have been only two Python logos. The original one, which I'm not sure when that came into existence, uh, but it's just sort of some. It looks like a bunch of marshmallows stuck together or something. Um, it's it's not it does terrible. look like marshmallows. I get light bright vibes. Light bright. Oh yeah, yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. So it's like white dots. And with like black dots around the outside, making the Python word, and nearly really, that's it. Um, and apparently that uh, passed for a while. And then the current logo um, came into into play in 2006 by, and it was designed by Tim Parkland, and uh, it's the logo that we have right now. Um, and I was, you know, I kind of got the the uh, the uh, Mayan vibe from the. The Python icon also, or the, the you know the two Pythons. But there's a quote from Tim it said the logo is uh, actually based on a Mayan representation of snakes, which is very often represented only represent only the head and perhaps a short length of tail. The structure of the snake represents the natural coiling nesting of snake of a snake as seen on the side. I don't know, but having having the uh, the symmetry also kind of reminds me of a yin yang symbol or something. Uh, anyway, I like I like it. It's good. But uh, the article then goes on to talk to a uh, talk to a, a designer who came up with a possible change and proposed a change in 2020, uh, Jessica Williamson, and um, it's pretty. Uh, but you know, I didn't really read the rest. I just thought it was curious to think about should we change it? And I guess I'm on the side of I kind of like the way it is, but I was curious what you guys thought. Jeremy, go ahead. Um, I mean, I've. I've grown, I've grown so used to the, grown so used to the other one, but, uh, I, I try not to be a, I try not to be a curmudgeon and, and, and like new things. <laughs> I know, I know Burger King just did their rebrand and, and even though I'm not a, not on the Whopper train, I'm like, yeah, you get something fresh. I suppose, um, Python even, there's going to be more people using it in the future than I've, than I've ever used it up to this point. And so, uh, you know, what the, what the existing folks think is less of a concern if it, uh, if it feels newer or more welcoming. Yeah. Fresher, yeah. If, it, if it pulls people in and it makes them feel like, oh, this is a fresh language, right? This is like one of the most popular, fastest growing languages in the world. Of course it has this logo. Um, I don't dislike it. I think it's pretty nice. I, I like the colors. I like the flair, but I feel like those gradients, those gradients are hard to combine. Whereas like this, this sort of flat color, you can put it in with other things, but like imagine like the thing you're trying to put the logo on also as a gradient. Then you got gradients on gradients. I don't know. It just it seems uh. a little slightly less versatile. I like that. So um, 
What I would just like to point out, though, is there are like rules and laws about this logo in ways that are way beyond what the normal person would think. For example, I used to have a logo that looked like the, the main Python logo, but it had earbuds on. However, it didn't have those little holes, right? You see those little holes, there's the eyes. It didn't happen to have those. Well, I happened to be on vacation at a beach with my family and got a cease and desist letter from the PSF because I was violating their trademark. Oh, wow. Because I used a logo that wasn't an exact, it was an alteration of the Python logo, not yeah. the exact one. Fair. Uh, I kind of felt like, you know, it, it could have been a little nicer rather than a, you know, full on legal, like you must stop this now or else we just have a conversation instead of started that way. Well, those are one but, of those yeah. things where if you don't, uh, if you don't defend it, then they have, a, you have a case that you can, you can start to lose it as to where yes, you're like, well, exactly. you never, you never made a case of it before. And so you had, you kind of have to, yeah, 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 it yeah is. exactly. Don't separate the snakes. Don't make one snake bigger. You can't. Right. When it, I put my app in the app store for the training courses, I had to go back and forth and prove that my my new logo, which is approved by the PSF, I actually had permission to do that. And yet, have you all looked at what is in the app stores? Uh, they are they are change of colors. They are uh, you know funky redesigns. They're like these weird things are slightly different shape, like this one. Ooh, this not one. okay. There's I, I, just a couple of pages. There's like 15 companies violating the trademark. And yet with these all presently here, I still had to fight for a week with the app store people to allow my approved one in there. Ooh, anyway, the I, exercises I, one is, is, is not, is not okay. <laughs> the one, yeah. the one with the, the barbell. Yeah. Or the, yeah, or the, the barbell stack? one is totally not good. I mean, they're, they're all not good. And I'll put the, the link in the show notes for those of you guys who can't see it, but boy, it's um long story short. I, there's a lot around this logo stuff that is just, Oh, that's cute. Right. It's, it's quite a bit uh, of stuff around it, legally speaking. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the, the rules aren't really that complicated, though. They're mostly. No. The, the logo has to appear in the same colors and it has to has to be visible and in its whole without something in front of it. Yeah. So, and you can't shift. The, it can't be squished. Like mine, the perspective was slightly off for some reason. And that was also part of the. Um, and they're also fairly good about like you can send stuff to them ahead of time and say, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Is this okay? And you can get pre-approval for stuff. But Yeah. And so now mine is approved and I feel much better about it. But I, I had no idea. I just came out of the blue. So there it is. <laughs> <laughs> but if anyone wants to start enforcing those, they should go have a look at the app stores. They're out of control. All right. Yeah. Uh, what's not out of control is uh, somewhat related is PyPI.org. It's pretty awesome, right? So we go to PyPI and or use PIP it indirectly behind the scenes, goes to PyPI and does all of its magic. You PIP install this and PIP install that. And it would be great if we could put, use that as a mechanism to communicate across teams or companies, right? Um, I, one team built some sort of API interface layer and some other part wants to consume it at your company. But you probably don't want to put that in the public repository. It might have secrets. It might just be inappropriate, all those kinds of things. So it would be nice to have your very own, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so introducing AWS Lambda PyPI. So it takes... IPI Cloud, which is a way to do self-hosting PyPI, basically a private repository, but then lets you run that over AWS Lambda in a serverless way. So it's basically free unless it's being used. And there's a ton of free requests you get at AWS Lambda before you get charged. And you don't have to have servers to maintain. So you can basically set up PyPI Cloud to run automatically as an AWS Lambda, which then you can lock down. That's pretty awesome, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Thanks. there's not a yeah, so there's not a whole lot to to talk about it. Um, 
you know if it acts like like a caching server as well so can you get um... oh, you probably could you probably could do that with uh pipei cloud okay it's, it's just rehosting pipei cloud which i'm guessing it can i don't know for certain but so you're saying like you'd like to just set that as the global destination well right it, it, i wanted to install request it pulls it from, yeah. yeah you wanted to pull the public stuff in plus like sort of merge your private stuff with it right yeah i haven't tried that but i suspect pipei cloud does allow that so the security wise <laughs> Security-wise, uh, it says the, the session keys are auto-generated and stored in a secret. The server configuration um, contains those generated on the fly. The Lambda functions can be limited to accessing only what it needs. And then, of course, you can configure PyPI Cloud to display nothing to non-authenticated users. So you basically have to log into it, and then you're good to go. So I think this is a pretty neat solution. I mean, you've been able to do stuff with PyPI Cloud already, but being able to put it in the cloud for free at scale seems pretty neat. Yeah. All right. Uh, next, next up, we have uh, not just the basics, but beyond. Yeah. So if you've uh, read some of uh, Els Weigert's other Python books, um, there's a uh, there's a new one, I believe, dropped January. That's the month that we're in. Um, can can grab from No Starch Press or can give a look over at the uh, at the URL above. And so many um, uh, other books and references are like, here's how to do the thing, go on. Here's how to do the thing, go on. And when uh, looking through beyond the basic stuff, a lot of it is uh, a look through the Python lens, but at being a better developer and being, uh, a, I, I, I don't think he said, but for myself, definitely like a less feral developer. And so, <laughs> so, so often it's feral, easy to get into that. Give us your interpretation of that. That's like, you've just um, been out on your own. You figure out how to make yeah, it work, but you, you don't yeah. necessarily... Follow the community. Yeah, raised by, agree. Yeah, raised by technical, raised by technical wolves. Um, so, so often um, when you <laughs> I love that uh, way of thinking, that's awesome. When you when you join when you join a team that's been either working together already or has been in industry for a while, there's those things that you don't know that you're doing that um, sort of make that make you look um, less polished. Whether that's mm. in a um, in a code interview, and so. Uh, when uh, like Al goes over um, what's what are what are reasonable variable names? What are uh, code smells? Uh, talking about like either duplicating code or um, what are so you can write something that works very easily. But here are things that um, it's so much it's going to be so much nicer to hear from Al. Like, hey, you probably don't want to do this as opposed to hearing from a teammate in a code review. Like. What is 86,000? You're like, oh, that's the number of seconds when you multiply by 60 and you do the, uh, yeah, I guess back right. to the, um, back to the <laughs> magic number earlier. You're like, well, why is, well, why is that bad? I, I did the math already. It doesn't make sense to do the math the extra times. But you're like, well, someone's going to have to come behind you and read that later. And no one hates you as much as future you hates you because it's probably going to be you who comes behind yeah. you and reads that later and doesn't remember. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, chapter after chapter, it's just so many things that are like, oh, Again, like code formatting, you know, like if you if you haven't been using formatting and linting uh, prior and um, makes it so much easier to um, interact with other folks and sorts of sort of helps you knock those rough edges off that aren't necessarily like this is how you Python, but this is how you become a good um, open source contributor citizen. Or these are the things that you need to know to work, but you really didn't. But you didn't know you needed it. Right, right. Even probably things like continuous integration and stuff you should probably know or Git or or PRs or all those. Like if you've kind of been doing that on your own, like you can and some organizations do, but many people don't create PRs for themselves. They just check in 
and carry on, right? Uh, so, so those kind of things. Yeah, this is great. You can read it online or uh, with the link in the show notes, or you can go buy it uh, online. Yeah, it's on No Starch. Uh, you can either get like the ebook, you can get printed copy, whatever you're, uh, whatever you're into. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that I was just looking through the Code Smells one. Even people just, just review that. Anything else? Uh, this is some pretty good stuff. Yeah, I love the idea of Code Smells so much because it's not wrong. Just kind of turns your nose like, like, ew, this isn't, this isn't so good, but it does work. And- yeah, well, one one of the big ones that I run into at work even is a lot is uh, commented out code. Um, people comment something out and then check it in, and if it's if it's dead, delete it. Well, we might need it later. That's what version controls for. We can go back and get it later. <laughs> if you really, really, really don't lose it, tag it or something, or maybe create a branch with a name, but just don't leave it in there. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Or worse, don't comment it out. Just stop using it, but don't delete it either. Or dead if functions. Yeah, a dead function or dead class. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. I'll see that occasionally. Somebody will rename a function like uh, function foo old. Um, why did you do that? Well, we're not using it right now. Duh. There's better <laughs> that, ways that, to that, remove that, hoard, that hoarder type code base. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I don't have a problem. Uh, I just have 23 cats. It's going to be all good. Uh. <laughs> all right. Oh, awesome. Well, so uh, let's talk about just a few extra things that you want us to throw out there. Brian, anything else? Um, We got a... Uh, Feedback. I'm sorry, I can't remember the guy's name. But in episode 208, we covered pip chill, which is a way to list out your dependencies, but only the top level ones. And uh, and I made a comment that it'd be cool to have this, but not have it list pip chill because I only installed it for this. And so yeah, he added a no chill option, so that's nice. <laughs> and um, self aware pip chill. And then just before this, I was on these Microsoft Developer Twitch channel um so that's a that's a fun thing the microsoft developer twitch tv they do it weekly um but don't watch them because you'll collide with watching us so you know oh yeah um, well they need to move their time or something don't they? <laughs> 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 it's both recorded it's all good it's all good yeah, so. oh and uh yeah pilang says he's been using um pip chill so cool 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 yeah i love the idea of it but i haven't yet made it into my workflow Jeremy, you got any quick extras you want to throw out there? You cover. Yeah, it all. I think the I think the other thing was uh, Brian's Twitter. I looked at and it was either today or yesterday that there was the the joke about the machine the machine learning Twitter bots and uh, and yeah, if like any of those that, that can be cooked up, always a good time. It made me uh, think of uh, one of the previous times I was in Portland at one of the conferences. Uh, there was both uh, there was talks on uh, Nate Smith had made prosaic. Uh, which is a Python um, uh, Python for doing uh, cut and paste poetry. And so you have any corpus of information you can take and chunk it down. And uh, that's paired with a Twitter bot. And so I went to look back because it's been a while. I have a Twitter bot that's still running uh, just called hitch underscore haiku on Twitter. So every hour on the 42nd minute, uh, it takes all the all five books from the trilogy and pulls uh, a five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables <laughs> out combines them all together and uh, and puts that into the world. I think about 25, 24, 25,000 times at this point. And <laughs> the machine learning is more wisdom of crowds. Like I'll get notifications like, oh, someone put favorites on them. Maybe maybe it happened upon a good one in the in the large pile of terrible ones. Fantastic. You have to put that in the show notes. The I, machine I learning that. was funny. I just found out that like there's a bot that if you say machine learning, it'll retweet you. So I tried to insult machine machine learning as much as I could and have it retweet, you know, the insults. Ah, um, so fantastic! Like you're you're, you're going to Beetlejuice the bot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I suppose also on um, 
on the Twitter front. Yeah, we, we just told you not to uh, not to scroll forever. But my um, my favorite client just got a refresh. Uh, if you use uh, iOS devices, uh, the Tapbots uh, folks have put out uh, Tweetbot number six yesterday. Ooh, nice. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I got to explore more uh, Twitter clients. I'm still just a web browser kind of guy. But it works for me. It works for me. All right. I got a quick couple of releases for everyone. Django 3.2 Alpha 1 was just released. So that's pretty awesome. Uh, a bunch of cool new features coming in Django. You can check those out. MyPy 0.8 uh, has just come out, and that has Python 3.9 support. PIP 21 is out, and that drops Python 2 support. So that's also a good one more uh, step away from legacy Python. And then real quickly, there's Elastic, uh, Elasticsearch. They changed their open source model, which is a very, I'm not going to say is bad. I, I kind of support them in this path, I think, but it's a very big deal. You know, um, AWS and some of the other um, cloud vendors are like basically selling Elastic as a service, Elasticsearch as a service. And they're like, wait, you just took our stuff and are selling it to other people. Whereas like we have a corporate sort of thing, but we have no relationship with these people and that doesn't seem real fair. MongoDB had exactly the same problem. And so they adopted the same license, the SSDL or something like this. Um, basically, it's still open source unless you want to resell it as a cloud vendor, then it's not. Um, I don't know. How do you guys feel about this? Open source business models are hard. Yeah, yeah. And it's really hard to put the to attempt to put the genie back into the bottle after. And so I think the, the, the part of that was unsaid was that Amazon said, fine, take your toys and do and sell your and sell your service, but we'll just fork it and continue yeah. to do the thing that they, we're- they forked it with the old model before it, you know, before it's changed and it got in there. And that was that. Right. And that was similar to what they did with Mongo. I think they basically said, we have a thing that is API compatible at, you know, three, six or whatever level it froze at. Right. And, and then they went on from there. Yeah. It's tricky. I think for some reason, Elastic has a relationship with Google cloud and Azure. And so they don't have that challenge with Azure, but they have no relationship with AWS. So here it is. Anyway, it's don't want to go that long on to it. I just wanted to throw that out there as something people would be paying attention to. But people that use it internally or on their own servers, there's, there's no problem with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's my understanding. You guys ready for a joke? Yes. Always. All right. Um, Brian, I feel like being a manager today. Can you be the developer? This comes to us from Kate Maddox. The well, it comes to us via a guy named Wolf. Send it over. Thank you for that. And it's written by Kate Maddox. So, all right, you okay. be the developer. I'll be the manager. So, I have uh, good news and bad news. Oh, uh, what's the good news? I've discovered that the five second rule only applies to food. <laughs> Fantastic. But what's the bad news? I dropped our tables. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> all, hope you all had backups. <laughs> uh, oh <yeah>. boy! <laughs> well, did, did you hear that? Like, I may, I probably have this wrong, but I think that the five second rule. Uh, I thought it was ten second rule. Uh, anyway, it depends. It varies by age. You know, if you're a little kid <laughs> and it's candy, it's probably a good thirty second rule. Uh, um, but I, I think it, it used to be a lot longer, and I think that the, it came stemmed from uh, Genghis Khan. Or at least I or heard this story that Genghis Khan had a rule about how long he would eat. How long after, it, uh, how many numbers of days he would eat meat that had been left on the floor or left on the ground or something mm. like that. Um, so, you know, All probably right. not good to eat meat that's been laying around for a few days. But that's <laughs> the three-day rule. Yeah, yeah you want to keep <laughs> that pretty short. Is get, it get the magic number for number of seconds by number of days by cleanliness of floor. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's only 150,000 seconds. No more than that. Come on. <laughs> Oh boy! All right, maybe guys. maybe somebody can correct me with the real story. So yeah, yeah, that's what happens on the show. 
we threw out bits of information and our listeners back us up. <laughs> yeah. All right, Brian. Right. Thanks as always. Jeremy, thanks. it's great to catch Thank up you. with you. Thanks for being here. Being Absolutely. Show, thanks for having me. You bet. Bye. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.